Hello, I'm Rob Buckingham and welcome to Digging Deeper, episode 63. Through each episode, we dig deep into topics and questions to see what the Bible says. In Acts chapter 5, Luke tells the story of Ananias and his wife Sapphira, a couple who conspired to defraud the church of finance. Things didn't end well for the duo. What are we to make of this in the light of God's loving nature? More on that later. But first, in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul wrote that Jesus made himself nothing. How are we to understand how a person can be nothing? Let's find out. This is a question that was asked last week, uh, further to our discussions around the Trinity um, and and particularly about Philippians chapter 7. So Tal asks this and he says, in Philippians 2, 7, what would the Greek word that is translated as nothing mean? So as I say, in connection with the Trinity, and it says Jesus made himself nothing. So let's have a look. Um, at these verses. These are in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. And it says, Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage, but rather he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And so tell ask this very good question from this verse, what does it mean that Jesus made himself nothing? Um, It's actually translated in many different ways. It's the Greek word kino, K-E-N-O, is the English English transliteration. Uh, In the New Testament, it's translated as void, emptied, no effect, in vain, and of no reputation. And of course, in the NIV, it's translated as nothing. And so Tal continues his question uh, with a couple of very good statements, because the English implies that being human is nothing. Is it possible that by his self-imposed limitation as a human, he was not making himself nothing, but rather exchanging his godlike role of creator or source of all being for the human role of earthly vessel of God's will. And I agree with that, Tal. I think you're absolutely spot on. It's definitely more insightful than the word nothing would suggest. In fact, the English word nothing is, I believe, not the best translation of that Greek word. And many Bible translate translations render this differently. So just a couple to pick from here. The Young's literal translation, which is a very good translation of scripture. It says, but did empty himself the form of a servant, having taken in the likeness of men, having been made. And then the Holman Christian Standard Bible, which again is an excellent translation. If you're looking for something a little bit fresh and different to read, Holman is excellent. Probably one of the most accurate translations you can read. And that says, instead, he emptied himself And I love the brevity there. Um, And then the New King James also uh, gets that interestingly by saying that Jesus made himself of no reputation. So they are all very good translations of that Greek word. 
There was a time before the incarnation when Christ had the form of God. And if you look at that in the original language, it literally means that Jesus was God-shaped. But what Paul is teaching here in Philippians chapter 2 is that Jesus didn't grasp this status by force and he didn't attempt to hold on to it or cling to it unnecessarily, but rather he emptied himself. And instead of holding on to his God shape, he willingly took human shape, the form of a man. In fact, he took the lowest human form in the status of a slave because the Greek word there is doulos. So some translations say he took on himself the form of a servant and that he did. He came to serve humanity in reconciling us with God. But the word doulos there is translated slave pretty well every place. And so Jesus emptied himself. And what we see in those verses is, first of all, he took steps down all the way down. And then halfway through those verses, Paul says, for this reason, God exalted him. And what we see in the next few verses is all the steps of God, the Father exalting Jesus after his death and his resurrection. So the self-emptying of Jesus meant that he came and became perceived as valueless. Uh, hence why the NIV uses the word nothing there, meaning valueless. The word means to empty something of its contents. I wonder if you've ever had a money box. I certainly did when I was a kid. I had a money box and my pocket money back in those days, of course, was coins. And my dad would give my sister, my brother and I some coins every, every weekend and we would pop them in our money box, our piggy bank. And you'd go and you'd shake it every now and again and you'd go, wow, you know, I'm getting rich. Um, and and then uh, after a while, of course, you would empty it out. You'd take the coins down to the bank and they'd give you proper money. They'd give you notes, right? And that's what Jesus did. It's like he he shook the contents of his God-shaped box and emptied himself and then filled himself with humanity. In these verses, Jesus is distinguished with Adam or from Adam, a man who was made in the image or the form of God. And then, of course, through the temptation by the serpent, he sought to be divine. What we have here in Jesus, he was divine and uh, he didn't try and grasp that like Adam did. Indeed, he surrendered his heavenly status, was born into the human race in order to reconcile people to God. It should be stressed here that at no time did Jesus cease to be divine. This is so important because there is a heresy and I still hear it even by some well-known pastors and preachers um, talking about Jesus emptying himself of his divinity. And they use a little verse in Acts where it talks about the man Jesus going about and doing good because the Holy Spirit was with him. And then they take that and they say, well, there you go. See, Jesus is emptied of all divinity. He ceased to be God. He's 100% human. And everything he did, he did because he was anointed by the Holy Spirit. And then invariably they take it one step further than that and say, okay, so Jesus was just a man. He was anointed by the Holy Spirit and you are just a human being and you can do those th same things by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
and, and it's making us equal to Jesus. And I don't believe that's right because Jesus, yes, he was 100% human, but at no point did he cease being divine. So in his humanity, he was 100% God and 100% human. It was the perfect God-man at all times. And I think it's really important that we get that right and we don't demean Jesus because he was still God. In fact, his very name, Emmanuel, means God with us. And he had the, the attributes uh, of God as well. Uh, in fact, in the Scriptures, it tells us in Colossians 2 and verse 9, for in Christ all of the fullness of deity lives in bodily form. And so in Jesus Christ, while he walked on this earth, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit existed in him in a human body. Paul describes Jesus to Titus as our great God and Saviour. And so Jesus has the qualities of divinity. He's omniscient, he's omnipotent, and he's omnipresent, even while he is in a human body and, of course, experiencing the limitations of his humanity as well. So uh, he's omniscient in the confrontation with the, with the scribes. Jesus is described as knowing their thoughts in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 4. Uh, he still knew all things. In um, uh, Jesus was omnipotent as well, all-powerful. Consider Jesus calming the waters of the Sea of Galilee during a horrendous storm. The story is recorded for us by Mark in chapter 4 of his gospel. And the disciples said to one another, after Jesus had calmed the storm, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? He was omnipotent. Why? Because he is God in human form and he is omnipresent. Think of his discussion with Nicodemus in John chapter 3. Uh, no one has ascended into heaven, said Jesus, except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And so he was in heaven and he was also on earth. Uh, later in John's gospel, Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And the Jews understood exactly what he was inferring there, what he was claiming by that, that statement, I am Yahweh. He was saying, I am God. Before Abraham was, I am. In other words, I have been eternally existent. And they understood exactly what he was saying and they considered it blasphemy and they tried to stone him to death at that point. But that wasn't his time to die and neither was that the manner in which he would choose to die. Jesus was completely God and, and completely human. While on earth, he relinquished his divine privileges and status by becoming a human being. He took the form of a man, a slave, to serve humanity by being our saviour. And so, Tal, I, be I believe that your question and your comments are absolutely spot on. Is it possible that by his self-imposed limitation as a human, he was not making himself nothing, but rather exchanging his godlike role of creator or source of all being for the human role of earthly vessel of God's will? And the answer is a resounding yes. We hope you're enjoying this Digging Deeper podcast and finding help understanding the Bible and how it applies to life. Here at Digging Deeper, we'd appreciate your help letting others know about this podcast. One way to do this is by rating and reviewing the podcast on iTunes. 
and please like Rob Buckingham's public figure page on Facebook. You can interact with us there and ask questions you'd like Rob to answer in future episodes of Digging Deeper. Now back to Rob. Jonathan asks, hi Rob, what's your take on the fate of Ananias and his wife Sapphira in Acts chapter 5? Did the punishment really fit the crime? Why is grace and forgiveness absent? Excellent question, Jonathan. Thank you. Um, Let's start the answer to this question by reading this story. It's Acts chapter 5 verses 1 to 11 if you do want to follow that in your Bibles and then I'll make a few comments. Now, a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira also sold a piece of property. I want you to notice the word also there because it's connecting it to a story in the previous chapter that we'll also read in a moment. Also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When when Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church, wouldn't it? And all who heard about these events. I mean, those young guys, I don't know who the young men were, just young men in the church. Maybe that was the Jerusalem young adults uh, group, connect group. (laughs) And it's like Peter was saying, okay, uh, Ananias has died, take him out and bury him. And they just get back from the burial and they walk into the church gathering and there's another dead body. That would be a very interesting church service, a very interesting day. And, of course, maybe laws were different in the first century. Uh, You could not get away with something like that today. If somebody died, you would have to contact the authorities. Um, The body would be taken. You'd contact the police. Uh, You would contact a funeral parlour. Um, an autopsy would have to be conducted um, and all of this rigmarole, there'd be an entire inquest into why somebody dropped dead during an offering at church and then his wife dropped dead three hours later. There'd be a lot of questions asked. The media would be all over it and it would be a bit of a circus. So I am not hoping for a repeat of the story of Ananias and Sapphira Uh, anytime soon at Bayside Church. Anyway, uh, having said all of that, I have a few comments um, to make about this and let's highlight these as we go. 
So first of all, it is possible that the story is a parable rather than literal historical fact. Um, and before you just switch off and go, Rob's a heretic, it's a true story, let me elaborate on this for you. For example, the Bible background commentary tells of a story in a similar time, first century, of some rabbis who allegedly disintegrated some foolish pupils with a harsh look. So you can imagine, I mean, we all know how to give a harsh look. I know how to give a harsh look to my kids at times. Uh, Christy and I, as husband and wife, if we don't like something out in public, you kind of give the look, you know, the look. Uh, <laughs> uh, if you have a partner, you know what the look is and you know instantly that <clears throat> you are in trouble for what you've just said. So apparently these rabbis gave... Um, a harsh look to their foolish pupils, and the pupils disintegrated in front of the rabbis. Now, we read a story like that and we go, yeah, funny story, highly unlikely that's true, most likely to be folklore. And so the New Interpretive Study Bible actually says that about this story of Ananias and Sapphira. And I quote, theological and pastoral questions arise why is Peter so harsh in not offering the couple an opportunity to repent? Does God really punish sinners in such a drastic manner? The story is more folklore than historical and is meant to underscore the serious breach that occurs when members of the Christian community lie to one another. And so is it possible that the story is a parable rather than literal historical fact? And, and by that, it's important that we understand that, that by saying that, we're not saying that the story isn't true. So there are different types of truth. And so there is truth as fact, but there is also truth as meaning, and the most important type of truth is truth as life. Um, and I taught a sermon on this a few years ago. You could Google this and find it. It's called, Is the Bible Really True? So if you Google that title and maybe put Rob Buckingham next to it, it'll bring up it'll bring up that um, that sermon for you. and And the thing is, sometimes we Christians get really hung up by trying to work out whether a story is factually true or not. and and we get so um hung up by it, we get get our knickers all in a knot over trying to prove that the story is factually historically true that we miss the truth in the story. I think people sometimes do that with, um, you know, the story of Jonah, for example. Now, maybe he did get literally swallowed by a fish, a, a big fish, for three days and three nights. Maybe he did, but maybe he didn't. It doesn't matter. That's not the purpose of the story of the prophet Jonah. There is so much rich meaning and truth in that story. It doesn't matter whether the story is factually, historically true or not. And I would say that that is also true of the story we've just read in Acts chapter 5 about Ananias and Sapphira. The thing is, we've got to ask ourselves, and, and, and this is going to be my next few comments, is what does this story mean? What is truth as meaning? And then another step further, what is the truth as life? In other words, what is the truth? that I find in this story of Ananias and Sapphira 
that I can apply to my life today so that I flesh this truth out and live this truth every day of my life and reflect the nature of Jesus as I do that. And so what truth is being taught in this story? That's the question we need to ask. What can we learn? Meaning, and how can we apply this truth every day? And that is life. Now that leads me to my second point here, and that is a teaching method in the ancient world was the comparing of positive and negative examples. And that's what Luke is doing. So um, if we go back to chapter four of of Acts, we realise that chapter ended with a general statement of the church's generosity and then a specific example. So reading those verses um, in Acts 4, verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there was no needy persons among them. For the time, for from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to everyone as they had need or anyone who had need. And then it gives a specific example, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. So this guy's real name was Joseph. He was from Cyprus. He was a Jew. He was of the tribe of Levi. But he was such an encouraging guy that the apostles gave him a nickname. They didn't call him Joseph. They called him Barnabas or Barney the Preacher, I think, as one translation calls him, might be the Message Bible, Barney the Preacher, the son of encouragement. What a wonderful nickname for this guy. And he sold a field that he owned and he brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. And then Luke compares this story with the story of Ananias and Sapphira, who also sold a piece of property. And so remember that When Luke wrote his letter or his gospel, very long document, um, he wrote Luke and Acts um, as companions, volume one and volume two. And there were no chapter divisions and there were no verses. They were added hundreds of years later. And so I'm glad chapters and verses were added because it helps us to navigate the scriptures. But also we need to remember that sometimes those human-made divisions within the scriptures can be a hindrance because we start reading the story of Ananias and Sapphira without considering maybe what goes before in chapter 4. Also understanding there were no social security benefits in the first century in Israel, nothing. There was no safety net. And so the church started supporting each other to make sure that nobody had needs. Now, this was particularly important in the early days of the church because if you go back to Acts chapter 2, you remember it was the day of Pentecost and hundreds of thousands of people would come from the then known world. Jewish people would travel in from other nations to Jerusalem to celebrate the, um, the feast of Pentecost. 
And so when that feast had fully come, we find Jerusalem had swollen in population by hundreds of thousands of people. I think the population of Jerusalem back in the day was normally about 80,000 people, but it, it swole during that time to hundreds of thousands of people. And what happened on the day of Pentecost, remember that crowd gathered, Peter and uh, the other apostles stood up, Peter preached the gospel, and on that day, approximately 3,000 people gave their lives to Jesus Christ. That was remarkable. And then we see in the succeeding chapters of the book of Acts that people continued to get saved um, uh, days, weeks, months after that. Um, Luke counts again. He says now there were 5,000 people in the church and so on. And recognising that many of these people are the people who had travelled in from other nations and instead of going home, they stayed in Jerusalem. Why? Because there was no other church anywhere else. And so they'd become Christians. They'd accepted Jesus Christ as their long-awaited Messiah, and the church was born in Jerusalem. There were no Christians anywhere else in the world, and so they wanted to grow in their relationship with Jesus and fellow Christians, and so they stayed. And so they had left their families and, and their houses and their businesses in different parts of the world, and here they were in Jerusalem with no visible means of support. And so the church, the Jerusalem Christians, were supporting one another uh, during that time. And people like Barnabas, who had come in from Cyprus, but he was a wealthy guy, and so he saw the need that existed in the church amongst the Christians and so he sold some land. Maybe it was back in Cyprus. It doesn't even tell us. But he sold the land and he brought the proceeds. He laid it at the apostles' feet. And that was for the distribution by the apostles to those who had need in the church. And so we can understand something of the gravity of the situation here. Um, Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira rather, they sold the land but then conspired and say, oh, let's say it's all the money but we'll just give part of it and, and it'll make us look good um, and they'll, they'll be none the wiser. And, 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 and so that was really ripping off needy people in the church. Understand as well, these were free will gifts that were completely at the discretion of the giver. No one was forcing anybody to give anything, okay? I, I would imagine they were tithing. Um, that's a New Testament principle as well as an Old Testament principle. Jesus talked about tithing in Matthew 23, 23 as a, as a New Testament uh, practice that his followers would do. Um, so I imagine they were tithing, but this was up and above, uh, particularly to help the needs of the people in the church. And they would bring these gifts and they would lay them at the apostles' feet. And that indicated that the gift was not for the apostles, but rather it was for the apostles to distribute to those who were in need in the church. Barnabas had demonstrated the right way to do this. And so then Luke gets a story and puts that in his gospel, the story of Ananias and Sapphira, to show the wrong way. The message is, Give like Barnabas, don't give like Ananias and Sapphira. And so that's the second thing. The third thing, the account of Ananias and Sapphira contrasts also with the story of Achan in Joshua 7. I encourage you to read Joshua 7 
at some point. Uh, the sin of one man brought death upon many others. And then, of course, in the New Testament story of Ananias and Sapphira, instead of the death being visited upon the community, death was visited upon Ananias and Sapphira, and that brought purity to the community rather than death. And one of the truths that we learn from this story is that God takes the corporate purity of his people very seriously. Number four, the story shows that God takes sincerity in claims very seriously. And this is something, a truth that I think we can all learn, and particularly we pastors. I've, I've been very concerned over the years uh, at, at the unhealthy interest of some pastors in the size of another pastor's church. You know, it's a little bit like the the schoolroom um, and comparing size uh, in 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 the in the boys' bathroom. You know, is something that that the teenagers do, and and it's just that you know when we become adults, but we're still comparing size. I, I remember going to pastors' conferences in the eighties, even through to the early two thousands. And one of the things I used to hate getting asked was, how big's your church now? Uh, the question, some, one guy asked me one day, he said, so how many are you running at Bayside Church? And I said to him, you know, I'm not running anybody. I said, I'm leading and pastoring a community of people and we're following Jesus together. Uh, you know, and then finding out some guy's been bragging about having this number of thousand people in his church and, I remember preaching for a guy like that and he, he was telling me, you know, his church has now got 3,000 people and I preached for him one weekend and, yeah, they had three services and the first service maybe had 80 people and the second had a couple of hundred and the evening service had a couple of hundred, but there's no way it was a church of 3,000. And so, you know, we're supposed to be evangelistic, not ev evangelistic, um, and, and this stretching of truth. And the story of Ananias and Sapphira shows us, amongst many other things, that God takes sincerity and claims very, very seriously. Um, and, and the whole thing, the whole story was completely unnecessary. It's very likely that this couple were a wealthy couple. Uh, we know that because of her name. Sapphira was an uncommon name, and it was only used amongst wealthy women. And so when people were giving, back in the first century, normally the man was in control uh, of the money. It was a patriarchal society. But here, of course, husband and wife are talking together. And so it's likely that she had brought money into the relationship as well. And so that they were most likely an incredibly wealthy couple. And so for them, Selling a property and bringing the proceeds was probably not a big deal. And so why, why did they have to lie about it? The property was theirs. No one had asked them to give it. No one had forced them to sell the property. It was a matter of their own free will. And then they had conspired together to keep some of the money, but they'd made out like they were giving it all. And so what we have here is pride and pretense and they were just being showy 
about, oh, look at what we're giving, you know. And Jesus said, don't let one, your right hand know what the other hand's doing uh, when you're giving to help the poor, which is what they were doing here. Um, And so they had lied to and tested the Holy Spirit, who is God. Uh, Was this a form of blaspheming the Holy Spirit? Was this the unforgivable sin? They're just questions. I'm I'm not suggesting that that it was. Um, interesting story. This is number five. The Dead Sea Scrolls excluded such an offender from the communion table for a year, but here we see a much tougher sentence imposed. But there's no mention in this story that God did the killing. What happens here is Peter pronounces the sentence operating the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's got the gift of insight, word of knowledge. Was he a novice in using the Holy Spirit's power? Did he learn from this personally? If it is an historically true story, there's no record of anything like this ever happening again, certainly not in the book of Acts and not in church history to my knowledge. And I will say I've never had anyone die during an offering at Bayside Church, and I don't want anybody dying (laughs) in an offering at Bayside Church, but I do want us, uh, as we follow Jesus together, and and even as I speak to those of you who are not part of our church community, who may be part of other church communities, be sincere uh, and spontaneous and generous in your giving to the Lord. Uh, When the Holy Spirit prompts you, be, be prompt and 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 quick to do it. And, and as Paul said, you know, don't, don't give out of compulsion or coercion, but give out of a heart that is cheerful and ready uh, and willing to give to the Lord um, and be in a church community where you trust the leadership, you know, just like Barnabas was here in the first century church in Jerusalem. They brought the money, they laid it at the apostles' feet because they knew they could trust these guys to distribute the money well uh, to the needs. What we have at Bayside Church is a board of governance of men and women who are full of faith, full of the Holy Spirit, trustworthy, faithful, godly, Um, who together oversee the budgeting and managing of the finances of our church so that there is accountability, everything is run squeaky clean, and you know that any money that you then invest into the Lord's kingdom in and through our local church is going to go through and help people who are in need. And, of course, it helps the running of our church community. It pays the wages of those of us who are on staff it feeds people um, who are homeless. It does so many different things. Uh, your tithes, your offerings um, that that you give to the Lord in and through our church community. And so back to Jonathan's questions. Did the punishment really fit the crime? Uh, great question, Jonathan. And no, I, to me, it doesn't appear that the punishment does fit the crime. In fact, there are far worse sins recorded in the New Testament without death being the punishment. Uh, Think about 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and uh, the young man who was having uh, an incestuous affair with his stepmother. That was a sin that would have been decried by the non-Christian world in the first century. And remember, Paul's writing this to the Corinthians. Uh, The Corinthians were known for their immorality. 
In fact, there was a saying back in the first century to play the Corinthian. It was like saying to play the harlot because the Corinthians were known for their immorality. And yet here Paul is writing to the church and he said there's there's a sin in the church community, the sin of incest, and you're all thinking it's fine, and even the non-Christian world are rolling their eyes thinking this is wrong, you know, and yet this is happening. And yet this guy and the stepmother didn't drop dead. You know, Paul did instill um, a, a period of time where this man was to be excommunicated from the church, but then a period later he wrote Second Corinthians and said, welcome him back in, the punishment is enough now, uh, welcome him back into the church. So he didn't drop dead. Uh, and, and, you know, the sin of incest is a pretty major thing. Even in our society today, it's something that is still against the law and rightly so. And then I think of Peter's hypocrisy in Galatians 2. Um, before the Jews arrived from Jerusalem, Peter was eating with the Gentiles, but as soon as the Jews arrived, he stopped eating with the Gentiles and only ate with the Jews. And Paul arrived and he watched what was going on and he rebuked Peter in front of all the people. He said, what you're doing is hypocritical and you've got to stop doing that. Um, and, and there's no record of what Peter did, but the likelihood is he went, wow, yeah, thanks, you're right, I'm sorry, and, and restoration happened as a result. Um, but again, hypocrisy, what he was doing was wrong, but Peter didn't drop dead. And so to me, I agree, the punishment didn't seem to fit the crime. If, there's a, if this is a literal historical event, my only thought here is that the apostles wanted to protect the baby church. Such protection wasn't needed as the church matured. And the last part of Jonathan's question, why is grace and forgiveness absent from this story? Um, and and I, I think that's where you come back to a literal understanding uh, of this story being troubling. It certainly troubles me because it doesn't appear to reflect God's nature of unfailing love um, and forgiveness. Neither does it demonstrate Jesus' statement that we find in Luke chapter 9 and verse 56, where he says, the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. Uh, Jesus is a saviour, uh, not a destroyer. So if Ananias and Sapphira were real people, then they were part of a church, they were Christians, they would have been considered saved, and there is no pronouncement here or no inference in the story that they were lost. And if they were real people, the likelihood is that they were in heaven. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. A new episode of Digging Deeper is out every Wednesday. If you like this podcast, please share it with others and rate and review us on iTunes. That goes a long way to help others find us. If you have a question or topic you'd like Rob to address, please contact us at Rob Buckingham's Public Figure Facebook page. Join us next week as Pastor Rob explores the experiences of people in the Bible who were supernaturally transported. Rob will also investigate why Jesus was born at the time he was. Why that time and not another time? All that and more next week. We hope you'll join us then.